Well, welcome. There we go. This is uh, lesson number 10 in the Doctrine of Scripture here in the School of Theology, and this is our last lesson for the season, for our semester, as we call it. Uh, we'll take the summer off and then come back in the fall and look at the Doctrine of God and the Trinity uh, in the fall. Let's open up together in a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we ask for your blessing tonight as we continue uh, thinking about your word. We thank you that your word is true and sure, and we thank you that you have blessed us with it because you would have every right to keep us in the dark about all your plans and about all your ways. But we thank you that the heavens declare your glory and that your word declares to us about your great covenant of grace and how you have set your love upon your people and you've sent your, the son of your love uh, to come and save sinners right now. So bless us, O God, as we open your word and think about it. Help us to understand something of its finality and its interpretation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A little more tricky than, uh, than we first realized. For example, um, if um, Arthur John came in today and he said, Dad, I had a bad day. Now, I have to interpret the word bad. I have to interpret what he means. And given his age, he's 17, given he's just come from school, just come from a public school, by saying I've had a bad day, he might actually admit that he had a great day. Because for kids today, if they say, ooh, that's bad, what they actually can mean is that's good. But interpreting Arthur John, you have to remember that he's, he's not 17. He's actually 57 years old. He's the oldest man in the house. And when he says bad, he means bad. <laughs> and so things didn't go so well today. So you have, to, uh, you have to take into account not just the meaning of a particular word, but the meaning of a word in its field, in its range, in its sentence, in its paragraph, in its chapter, in its book. And uh, there are folks who sometimes treat words, particular sets of words in the Bible, as if they're somehow kind of extra special magic compared to everything else. Some people do this with large sets of words, like the red letter edition. They'll read the New Testament. Now, I've got a red letter edition here. And uh, they'll, it actually helps me find the it helps me find the sections where it's a quotation of Jesus, so that's fine. But there's some people who think that that's the only true part of the gospel, is what Jesus said, and the rest of it isn't inspired. No, it's all inspired. It's all important. The red letters and the black letters, because they've all been given to us by the Holy Spirit. Now, it is true that the red letters are portions that not only has the Holy Spirit given to the, to the original writers, but that Jesus Christ himself also spoke, and they passed through his lips. So that's uh, makes them extra special in that sense that they've been doubly confirmed to us. But we have to interpret within the wider context. And it's very important that we avoid dangerous assumptions, such as the assumption that whatever we want to want to make that word mean is what it means in that sentence. No, it's what the original author intended. We don't um, let the word in a sentence alter the meaning of all the other words. We have to look at them in their natural, plain reading and meaning together. And we don't assume that the history of a word tells us what that word means in any given sentence. For example, the word cardinal. I could walk up to John and I could say, John, that's a very uh, nice cardinal shirt you have on. 
and it's a nice red color. And then somebody could take that sentence, that's a nice cardinal shirt you have on, and they could play games with the word cardinal. They might, they might change the meaning of that sentence by concentrating on that word to imply that he's a baseball player or to imply that he's a football player because there's a cardinal football team and baseball team, or at least there used to be. I don't know if there still is. There still is. Or the color of the cardinal baseball and football team comes from a bird. So it might be a way of kind of poking fun at you and saying you're being a little tweety. But that color of that bird gave that bird that name because of its association with a church office in the Middle Ages that had a robe of a particular red color that they wore. And so maybe that's a cardinal, nice cardinal shirt. Maybe that's some kind of somehow implying that you are a uh, uh, above bishops in the church. And uh, the color of that robe was related to a certain kind of dye that was related to a certain kind of flower and a certain kind of berry. So you can go deep, more deep, deep and, uh, deeper and deeper and deeper into the etymology, and that doesn't actually help you understand much about that shirt at all or his wearing of it. And so you have a fallacy that sometimes people fall into that if they can dig down to the deepest root meaning of a word, then they'll really understand that verse. And what they need to be doing is asking, what did Paul mean by that word? What did Moses mean by that word? What did the original author mean when they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write that word or say that word? Uh, there's a third principle called the illegitimate totality transfer, and it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing that people do. You know, in the, in the dictionary, uh, when you look up any word, how many definitions does it have? Just one definition for the word or more than one? More than one. Well, um, one thing people love to do is to say, well, there's that word that's so special, and what I'll do is look up in the dictionary, and it has ten definitions, and rather than picking which one the original author meant, I'll say, well, it just means all of them. And so one time when I read the verse, I use one definition, and another time when I read the verse, I use another definition. And what ends up controlling which definition I use? Whatever it is I want to say. So it puts me in charge instead of God in charge. And uh, people make that mistake all the time. Uh, there's also a, uh, what's called a false assumption of uh, converseness, where, um, for example, if uh, baptism is supposed to be um, uh, with water, uh, that doesn't mean that you then turn around and ask the question, well, what happens if you get baptized without water? Or if... Um, if Jesus was raised from the dead with a, and, and there was a great shining light, then well, now what does it mean if someone's raised from the dead with a great shining darkness? You, you hypothesize the opposite and try to draw conclusions from the opposite. Uh, there, is, there is an assertion in the text, and you stick with what the author is talking about, not your own speculative uh, runs. Uh, in uh, directions he never intended. Um, sometimes, though, words are a bit vague. Sometimes words uh, in Greek and in Hebrew have a range of meaning that's not this size, but it's that size. And you're left wondering where in that range of meaning is the exact meaning of that term. And, and that experience of not being sure and having to struggle through and think through and pray through what that might mean 
may actually be what the author is intending for you to go through. This is true in the book of Hebrews, where in two chapters in the book of Hebrews, you have questions about people who fall away from the faith being brought up, and everybody who reads them gets terrified. Well, you know, that's what's supposed to happen. No matter what your understanding and assurance is, you're supposed to go, Lord, is it me? Have I done that to you? Have I walked away from you? Have I lost my salvation? You're supposed to go through that experience of, of inward surfing, searching and self-examination as the Lord shines a light in your heart. There are um, other extra-confessional um, principles. Uh, for example, there's a dichotomy sometimes that you hear about between Eastern and Western thought. Oh, that's very Eastern, you know. Or, oh, you know, you are part of an American tradition, modernist tradition. You're very logical, causal, deductive, as if Jesus and the disciples and and anyone uh, east of of Jerusalem uh, was incapable of logical thought. Yes, these are false principles. Uh, Polymorphous concepts, the idea that you can take a word and change its meaning uh, in the text or a false Christocentrism where uh, in every chapter or verse of the Bible, somebody wants to ask now, what does this say directly about Jesus? And you know, there there are parts of the Psalms where every verse says says something about Jesus. But in the book of Numbers, it's a little tougher. Okay, In Leviticus, it's an indirect reference to Christ rather than a direct one. And so we have to be careful. People think that because... Somebody wants to do a Christocentric interpretation that that must be biblical and good. And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Uh, you also don't want to argue from incidentals in the text. Like, um, um, yes, the year that King Uzziah died. And that becomes uh, something that someone latches onto. It's a historical reference that meant a great deal to the original audience, but to us, Who's Uzziah? You know, it doesn't mean as much to us. But they latch onto that and they make something out of it that, that it never was intended to be. Um, or uh, they, um, uh, they will explain away the real meaning of a text by saying, you know, all oh, that's just culturally bound. Like everything the Apostle Paul said about marriage and he said about uh, offices in the church and who should preach and all, that's just he was bound by his culture. He couldn't see past his nose. Well, if he can't, if he can't see past his nose, then what spiritual good is he? We need someone who's an infallible guide, who's being led along by the Holy Spirit. So these are, these are basic questions of interpretation uh, that we face and, and that we must deal with. Let's, uh, let's stop for a moment and take a break. We've got some cake. Uh, there's a knife over there and some plates and forks. So uh, let's enjoy a little time of fellowship since it's our last evening. All right, another principle of extra-confessional hermeneutics is wholesale use of key texts. And, and this appears to be very evangelical at times. What people will do is they will give you just two or three texts. that are, this is, These are really the important texts for this doctrine or this, this idea. And they will not reconcile it with anything else in the Bible. They will not reconcile it with any other doctrine. For example, if somebody has a particular view of Christ that's off, with regard to his divinity, well, then that's going to mess up the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's going to mess up the doctrine of God. And that's going to contradict the Bible. So it causes a cascade, a domino effect of problems. And it creates problems from that point forward in, in the topics of theology. If you don't get the deity of Christ right, then you don't get salvation right because you're not saved. And you don't get 
the growth in grace of, of uh, sanctification, right? Because there's no sanctification to have if you haven't been saved. And what's eschatology? What? Jesus is coming back. Well, if he's not God, what good is that? So you shipwreck kind of a domino effect all through the Christian faith. And and one aspect of the faith's teaching is the doctrine of Scripture, and, and it means that you're contradicting not just one or two other Scriptures on that topic, but dozens and dozens and thousands. And so... Um, the wholesale use of just a few key texts is a problem. It is true there are chair texts that are major passages that are so clear and so strong uh, that we have to uh, we have to let them be seen for what they are. But they have to be reconcilable uh, with the rest of Scripture and the rest of Christian teaching. Now, then there's this uh, very difficult to pronounce term, demythologization, uh, and this is something. This is something that is a very common uh, reality in 20th century and in some 21st century, unfortunately, uh, liberal circles. The idea that you have to take the Bible and remove the mythology from it, uh, that it's, uh, uh, it's some kernel, some really heart of great teaching, but it's all caught up in this cultural, false, religious, uh, historic context of misunderstanding. And the Bible's not the Word of God. It's only a witness to the Word of God. And, and there's just a tiny grain of sand on each page, and you've got to get rid of all the rest of that chaff. And so you have uh, neo-Orthodox theologians that have excelled in uh, this kind of uh, method of interpretation of the Scriptures. Well, the, the three B's, as they're called, um, Bultmann, Bart, and Bruner. So uh, Rudolf Bultmann uh, is still revered in, in mainline uh, university academic circles on the continent of Europe. Uh, and uh, he has triumphed. His, uh, his, his core idea being that the text of the Bible is not inspired, but there is an experience that the believer has that the text gives some witness to. And so what we need to do is to pay attention to what's really central to that experience. So that Jesus was born of a virgin, that's not true. That Jesus uh, died on the cross, well, that probably is true, maybe. Um, that he's resurrected, that's not true. But we know that he's resurrected in our hearts in some sense. And that we um, feel moved by God in the act of the preaching of this mythology that's not true. And that feeling that we have is so very important. And that's the central essence of religion. And what gives some Germans the right to pick which bits are going to be Well, um, the nice thing about that is if you're employed in the German university system is it means that you get to argue for the rest of your career over all of these things. It's a very nice paycheck. You get to be an expert, see. Uh, he lived in the, oh, middle, uh, last, last quarter of the 19th century, 1800s until the um, 1950s, and uh, really all three of these guys did. Bart died in 1968. He was a softer version. He at first worked together with uh, uh, Bultmann, and um, then they had a falling out. But he, um, he emphasized the fact that uh, the Word of God, not written, but the Word of God... Uh, as real revelation happens in our own hearts, not not in the in the written text of the Bible, 
and that if you go to church and you sit under preaching and you read the Bible and if you pray um, and if you do theology, then you're more than likely going to be impacted by this revelatory experience at some point. Um, he avoids answering questions about whether the text of the Bible is historically true. People still today write books arguing whether he believed in the resurrection, whether he believed in the virgin birth. And, and great scholars arguing each side of that. He wrote 9,000 pages. And uh, all I can say pastorally is any guy that wrote 9,000 pages and you can't tell whether he believes in the resurrection uh, is not a good Christian theologian. <laughs> Uh, he is Swiss German. Bultmann uh, was true blue German, uh, Berlin, I think. And um, Brunner was also German. And uh, he was the one that was the most conservative sounding. A lot of evangelicals liked his book on Christ the Mediator. Um, but the reason they liked it, I think, was that they couldn't understand the philosophical European context that it came out of. But he was... Um, not critical of the text. He didn't criticize the text of the Bible. And he pretty much plowed um, core basic doctrines uh, in a straighter fashion. But um, uh, at the end of the day, it was human experience that, that controlled the arc of, of the Christian faith rather than objectivity of God. Enormous followings. Um, Bart, for example, was a charming professor. You know, German, to, to be a professor in the German university system, you don't have to get one PhD, you have to get two. And um, by the time you finish a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and two PhDs, you're cranky. And um, they, um, they were under, and you see, they're, they're, once they become established, nobody can touch them. They can't take their jobs away. It's, it's tenure on steroids. And so um, a professor who would go out of his way to interact with students and spend time with them was a very notable and attractive thing. And their lecture halls would fill to overflowing. You see, German university students do not have to attend class. They only go to class if they want to. Uh, and it's basically a seven-year vacation with a little study thrown in sometimes. And, and, you know, good people could take, for example, Jamie could take a seven-year scholarship to go study. She'd do a great job. But, you know, some of the rest of us would spend our time partying and then, oh, yeah, in the last year think, I guess I better learn enough to pass the exam, you know. And so um, uh, the German university system is open to, to open structure to an attractive, charismatic figure. And he would take his students on walks in the woods, weekend trips. He, he did a lot of things in order to cultivate a following. And uh, he also intentionally cultivated an overseas following. His reception in Britain and America was just enormous. Um, the old Southern Presbyterian Church did not um, lose the Bible because of old German liberalism from the century before. Uh, we were uh, too poor from the Civil War, and our educational system was uh, uh, not into cutting-edge things, and so we, <laughs> praise the Lord, we were protected. It was the theology of Bart that destroyed us and um, brought the Southern Church down. So uh, each one of these guys has done damage in different ways. I would start at all get your proof text, and, and I can read all of them and mm -hmm. try to interpret, you know, and trust in the Holy Spirit, but then it's Jim's interpretation that wins, right? I don't think we're saying that. How do we resolve human-wise, presbytery-wise, 
that the Holy Spirit is the judge. But yes. He's got an opinion about it, and this guy's got an opinion about it, and I'm not sure which one's right. Yeah, I think I think there's some big uh, big frames to the picture that we have to keep in mind. For example. Um, eccentric individuals who come along with a very unusual interpretation. Um, history makes mincemeat of them, usually. They may have a flash in the pan and a following for a short period of time, very charismatic personality, but uh, whatever it is they're teaching doesn't catch on. Um, so the Holy Spirit can judge something in providence by the sands of time, as it were. The Holy Spirit can also judge something in providence by uh, blessing one and by withholding blessing or applying cursing to the other. And um, uh, now sometimes he works in a way that that takes a period of time to be seen. But, you know, the, the slogan in the early church was Athanasius. He was the good guy. Athanasius against the world. The entire world had turned to Arius and to Arius' teaching that Jesus was not God, that he was not truly the Son of God, uh, one with the Father. And so, you know, here was this little monk who'd been hiding in a cave in Africa, and they had to go down and get him to help him, you know, to whoop these folks. And he was like David against Goliath. And the Holy Spirit blessed, and the tables were turned. And the Holy Spirit used a, a whole number of different things, including um, empire politics, you know, in order to impact that. But at the end of the day, the kind of theology that Arius was foisting upon the Bible and trying to sell did not create, you know, it was not the same theological system as had been had in an earlier generation, and it could not support and uphold um, logically and spiritually um, the normal Christian life. And so in the providence of God, you know, that collapsed. We see bits and pieces of that today in cult movements like you see pieces of it in the Jehovah's Witness movement today. Um, but with, with regard to a particular church or denomination, I mean, use Presbyterianism as a good example, um, if somebody cooks up some new idea, then what ends up happening is it's judged by presbyteries as new uh, as people, as men come forward to be examined, they're examined to see whether they'll be allowed to be put in a pulpit or not, or allowed to be teach, uh, allowed to teach in a seminary. And if they have strange or false doctrines, oftentimes they'll come out in that process, or they come out even before that process begins, because they'll be invited by one of our churches to be a pastor, and they'll say. You know, oh, you're in the PCA. Oh, well, I'm not really interested in being examined by your presbytery. And so the, the examination process itself will, will keep them out. And that's good because it means you don't have to go to the trouble to examine them. But sometimes things are discovered in the examination process. Um, what does happen sometimes is they get through because they can have a small committee and then even questions from a floor of presbytery, and they can answer those in a way that sound orthodox. They may not even know how messed up they are. I've seen that before. And uh, they get in the pulpit of a church, they're installed, and they start teaching strange things. And it begins to trouble folks in the congregation. The beautiful thing today is you can go online and click, and you can actually hear their sermon, sometimes stream live. And the beautiful thing about that is open access. And it means, you know, I heard Bob down the street was teaching this strange stuff, and lo and behold, there it is. And it'll be brought up in, you know, somebody will go see him. It'll be brought up in presbytery. 
it can be taken to the appropriate committee. The committee can call him in and say, Bob, we're hearing, you know, that you're doing this, that, and the other. Are you? And he's all, sometimes they say, I don't know. <laughs> and, you know, so then the presbytery can study it, and there'll be a vote in presbytery about whether that's sound or not. But then you have the general assembly looking over the shoulder of the presbytery. Um, but if you want to know how the votes turn out, it's something that I don't think the average person in the pew understands. I, I didn't understand it growing up in the Presbyterian church. Um, you know the old adage, I don't think this is generational, that the kind of morality, the kind of public morality that we, that we get in the community, in the home, is we get the public morality that the women are willing to put up with. The same thing's true in the church with regard to ruling elders. Presbyteries make, vote and make decisions, and the majority of guys sitting in the presbytery are, are elders from local churches just like this one. And if they have been trained well, and if they care about what the Bible says, if they care about basic Christian doctrine, then they'll hold the line. And if they don't hold the line, then all of us suffer the consequences of that. No, it's not democracy uh, because it's it's actually a form of it's a very <laughs> to try to analyze it's very difficult because it's it obviously has representative nature rather than rather than pure democracy, but yet the person is is not we don't make somebody an elder we recognize that the king of the church gave them gifts and so we're merely recognizing the gifts that Christ has already given, so it's a it's a monarchically established oligarchy that uh, is represented represented republicly. So it's a, it's a strange mixture. You know, it's not just pure democracy. Um, and it's, it's difficult enough for a group of uh, hardworking, trained ruling elders to understand uh, some of the ins and outs of these things. If we just threw it out into the, into the, you know, down the middle aisle of the congregation, it would, it would become a political sideshow, which happens in congregationalism typically. Good question. You know, I, I love that process, Duncan Dunford, that you just described. I think that one of the best things about our form of government is how you get the kind of back and forth and take. But, I mean, obviously it's important at the same time to emphasize that General Assembly is not Lord of the Conscience. Absolutely. Assemblies, you know, groups of guys can be dumber than individual people. I mean, I one time was in a room, and, and, and it was a particular missions organization that guy was describing who had worked there for years, and we said, you know, we're having trouble understanding this. We're meeting all these guys, and they're pretty nice guys, but, you know, when they make decisions as a group, it's a little a little scary. And he said, oh, he said, you need to understand, these are the sweetest Christian men you would ever meet, but when they get together, they're just dangerous. <laughs> you know, you can have this kind of group mentality that takes over. That's very strange. So um, I think I would say the same thing about church government that uh, we say about civil government, you know, our, our civil government has lots of problems, but the thing that's going for it is that it's, it's not as bad as all the others. <laughs> uh, obviously, whatever the structure is, even a biblically mandated structure where you have a plurality of elders, and so you don't have, you don't have individual guys making decisions. They're submitting to the gifts that Christ has given corporately, so that, that way they're submitting to Christ. But if you put sinners in all those seats, guess what happens? You get problems. You know, and, and one of the things that was, well, this, this week I was, um, I was invited downtown to have a, uh, have a lunch with, uh, one of our RUF campus ministers who's at Rice University. And, uh, over lunch he said, 
he was a former student. He said, you know, Dr. Rankin, I'd love to get some young guys in the Presbytery together and get you to tell us old war stories, you know, about difficult situations you faced in church life and how to handle them, that kind of thing. He said, because some of the stuff you've seen is pretty scary. And I said, well, you know, let's get together. And um, uh, I t- he asked me, you know, what's been the deepest or most important question that you've learned or issue that you've learned about? And I said, well, I had to learn through the school of hard knocks that although the, the governmental structure of the church is proper and biblical, that she doesn't always function as she ought to because everybody in the room is a sinner. And that once Jesus comes back, it's all going to be perfectly fine. And then until then... Uh, it's a challenge and that we have to continue working and praying and loving and caring and be patient and vigilant and et cetera. Um, and uh, that's a good lesson to learn. Good lesson to learn. It's like somebody who goes into a marriage thinking in these idealistic categories as if now that we once we're married, everything's perfect. Now, y'all don't think this, do you? Once we're married, everything's perfect. You know, and we live happily ever after. And, you know, you don't live happily ever after. You just live, you know. And, and in the providence of God, good things happen. And in the providence of God, hard things happen. And some of it's easy and some of it's hard. And you, uh, you hang on and you pray and the Lord looks after you. Um, at least that's what I think after almost 30 years of marriage. So uh, we have a lot to learn from each other in that. Don't want to scare the new ones on the front row. That's right. So to wrap up, these are... These are a list of seven um, lines of argument or concern about this demythologization. Um, Bultmann appealed to the modern scientific worldview in the 1950s and 60s. And, you know, that was really, well, and before. And that was very persuasive until postmodernism came along and we found out that you could OD on, on modernism and, and scientific worldview as well. So uh, it, uh, it's not stable. It's changed through time. Uh, his own personal worldview was very dated, uh, very bound by his own time, and that his his demoth- the kind of demythologizing of the text that he did, like the idea that the virgin birth wasn't required and the resurrection wasn't required, you know, from a postmodern viewpoint, that's not radical enough. God's not required. Deity's not required. Uh, you can just you can throw out even man as a subject, because none of us really matter. In, in, in modern philosophy. Um, he emphasized preaching and the kind of getting caught up in the moment in preaching and, and the, the existential experience that you can have under preaching. And uh, he emphasized that you have to have myth to have a really good uh, kind of preaching experience or charisma. And um, uh, the problem with that is, is how do you get comforted by something that's not true? That doesn't make any sense. Um, the strange thing about Bultmann's program is that you look at it, his whole theory and his whole practice, and there's one thing sitting in the middle of the room that you don't need, and that's Jesus. You don't need Jesus for a system. You, you really can't explain why Jesus came because it's not like he died for our sins to pay for them because there's no God that would ever demand a payment, and our sin doesn't really matter, and all that's just mythology. The only reason he comes is for preaching. An experience of preaching? I mean, we can, we can have preaching without having Jesus die on a cross. Yeah, there may, there may be an interesting connection there. Um, his program was to existentialize Christianity, how I feel in the midst of Christian belief and experience. 
And, um, but what he ultimately does is, is he, he contradicts the Apostle Paul. He takes his scissors out and he trims Christianity, trims Revelation down to fit his own human judgment. He was very clever, very influential, and he judged the Bible. It was Bultmann over the Bible rather than God in the Bible over Bultmann. And it's the old classic problem of pride. So that what that means is we're now at the end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that your son is true and sure, and so his word is sure that he's given through his prophets and apostles, and we can trust you. We thank you that uh, that revelation that you have given that is so special because it speaks of our salvation is self-authenticating because you authenticate it. Uh, you apply it to our hearts and lives, your Holy Spirit, uh, has his way working in our hearts, and you draw us to yourself, you change us, you make us new. We ask, O oh Lord, that as we go day by day and week by week with our Bibles in our hands, that we may have great courage in you because of what we have seen and learned about your word. And we pray that our love of Jesus and devotion to him might only blossom and increase as we appreciate and use that means of grace, your word written, that you have given. In Jesus' name, amen.